Huh? <laughs> I'll tell you what, uh, Church Aerobics this morning with all my up-downs, uh, it is great again to see everyone here. I'll tell you what, as, they continue, as the choir continues to make their way out, what an incredible day of worship. And thank you so much uh, for joining us today as well. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I get asked often, you know, what, what is some of the greatest things in ministry? And, and of course, that's a long list, but, uh, but certainly one of the greatest joys is to experience tram- transformed lives. Uh, how God uses the church and others to speak into lives, to transform those lives. And uh, just in the past um, weeks and, and months and, and counseling with, talking with Jennifer and just seeing her on that journey, uh, I tell you, it is such a blessing. And uh, how, how disappointing it would be for anyone to leave here today and, and not say that I'm either on that journey uh, or I'm confident in that journey that I'm taking to trust Christ as Savior and, and to be confident in my believer's baptism by immersion. Uh, what a, a waste it would be to walk out these doors without that confirmation. So I pray that testimony and witness today uh, will ring true in others' lives as well. Well, as the bumper showed you, I'm uh, in the middle of a five-week series. We're looking, it's entitled The Miners, looking at five of the 12 minor prophets. Uh, and something that all the minor prophets have in common is they all kind of deal with uh, Israel's departure from God and then what is required then for their restoration uh, to come back to him and to be in fellowship with God. I mentioned last week, and I'll remind us again, the word minor does not mean lesser. It just means shorter, more concise. And that's what you have in the minor prophets. There's a lot there, powerful messages, but they're just shrunk down. They're concise and condensed. And I know some of you wish I was a minor preacher, right? Or at least had some minor condensed sermons, but I'm not. So I'm just going to have to stick on the major side. The uh, great theologian George Burns uh, once said this. That's a joke, by the way, if you don't know George Burns. He did play God, though, in a movie, didn't he? He did, Uh, but he's not him. But he said this. He said, the secret of a good sermon is to have a really good beginning and a really good ending, and then put those two as close together as possible, right? Um, Well, my time is a bit shorter today, and I am going to try to be more concise and to honor the late George Burns as well. Uh, Last week, we opened our Bibles and looked at the book of Joel, and and several things we looked at there, but Joel, of course, God used that illustration speaking through him uh, of the the, the great plague of locusts that they had experienced, and then also that that was foreshadowing of what was to come in their lives as well. And from that then, he, in those pastors, he looked at at the past the future, and then ultimately the the final day of the Lord when Christ will return and restore his kingdom. But the the, the ultimate message throughout all of Joel, within those uh, intertwined throughout those three chapters, was this, God's desire for his people to return to him and for all man to turn to God for salvation. Well, today we're going to look at the the book of Nahum. And like the book of Joel that we looked at last week, Nahum's only three chapters, right? So that will help with your readings following today's message. Um, But in that, to understand the book of Nahum, you really need to have a good understanding of the book of Noah as well. And you may recall, if you were here, 
uh, I think it was in 2020, January 2020, several years ago, I preached a three-week series through the book of Jonah. Hey, if you were not here, and I know many of you are new to Northside, uh, then let me give you just a quick summary of the book of Jonah, because again, to really understand Nahum, you've got to understand the book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet, and God had called him and gave him that, that special message to go to Nineveh, right, to go and, and to preach to them and to preach repentance to the Ninevites. But Jonah didn't like what God was saying. He didn't like what he was hearing from God. He didn't want to do it. So instead, uh, Jonah decides, as though you can, I'm going to run from God, right? Like you can hide from God. Uh, but, but he gives it a shot. And so he jumps on a ship headed to Tarshish, the, the opposite direction of Nineveh. Now, what you also need to understand, uh, it, it, it's not just a knock on Jonah, because really, no Israelite wanted to go to Nineveh. Right? That was not a welcome place uh, for, for God's children. In fact, they hated them. Uh, Nineveh was the capital city uh, of the Assyrian Empire, and the Ninevites were known for just being ruthless, uh, God-hating people. In fact, they, they hated God's children so much, the Israelites, that they really wanted to, to wipe them off the planet, to, 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 to rid the earth of them. Uh, it is said that to their enemies, they were so ruthless they would literally skin them and hang the skins of their enemies, human skins, flesh, on the walls that surrounded and protected the city. That, that's how ruthless they were. Now, I share all this just to, to put in perspective what God was calling Jonah to do. He was calling him to go to that place where, where he was hated, go to that place where they, they were not just enemies of the Israelites, but they were ruthless, the, the, the worst enemies of the Israelites. And it would be kind of like today if God spoke to you and he's, Mark, I'm calling you to go and preach a message of repentance to Hamas. I mean, that, that would be uh, within the scope of, of, of the message that Jonah was receiving. So you can understand while he was at a minimum, he, he was a little bit hesitant. So he jumps on the ship. He's going away saying, I'm going as far away as I can from Nineveh. And while he's on the ship, you may know the story, but uh, God puts a, a huge storm on the sea, right? And, and that boat's going crazy. The, the, the sailors, uh, the, they are, the mariners that, that were on the boat, they, they are freaking out. And so they're trying to figure out, well, what can we do? And, and nothing's working. And they knew this was a storm from God because they'd never seen anything like this before. And they began throwing stuff overboard. It's not working. They begin praying to all their gods. Nothing's working. The, the storm is just getting worse and worse and worse. And, and eventually they, they go down into the belly of the ship uh, where Jonah was. And they asked him, they said, well, you're, you're the, it's got to be you. What's your story? And he, he tells them that he was running from God. And they said, well, this, you, you've brought all this on. And Jonah says, well, I'll tell you what, throw me over, throw me into the sea to, to appease God. Right? Well, they didn't want to do that. Jonah, in essence, was saying, hey, listen, uh, I just assume dies go to Nineveh because I'm going to get killed there anyway. Right? So, so he was being legitimate. I just, just throw me overboard, make it easier on you guys. Well, they refuse to do it. And they, they try everything they can. And then ultimately, they throw him overboard. But, unfortunately for Jonah, he didn't drown. In fact, it says that, that a great sea trick creature came up and, and swallowed Jonah, and, and he stayed within the belly of that fish, if you will, for three days. Three days just in, in, in a, a, just a mess of a, belly, a fish of a belly. Can you imagine what, what was in there with all that the fish eat and, and all the, the, the rotting sea creatures? And, uh, and yet, that's where he lived for three entire days. And then, as things, I mean, he's thinking, it can't get any worse than this. So finally, he begins to cry out to God and says, God, you, you've got to save me from this. You, you've got to save me. And God does. And the, the fish pukes Jonah out on dry land, and, and you know how the story goes. He then goes to Nineveh. He preaches to the Ninevites, 
and they do exactly what God wanted them to do. They repent. Now, what you need to understand also, God wasn't asking Jonah, hey, will you go to Nineveh? God was telling Jonah, you're going to Nineveh. This is where you're heading. Now, you've got to choose. Do you want to go by fish or boat? Totally up to you, right? But I'm going to get you there, right? And so he lands. And then that, his message, and hey, guys, in 40 days, God's going to destroy this whole city. Now, you would think the Ninevites would buck that and, and just kill him. But as I said, they didn't. They believed. They repented. It says even the king repented. In fact, so much so that he issued a decree to the entire uh, city of Nineveh for everyone to uh, pray and fast to this God. And they did. He was so serious. He even made the animals fast during that time. I mean, this literally was one of the greatest revivals in all human history. And then you know what happens in the final chapter, chapter four of Jonah? And after all this, you would think Jonah would just be celebrating. He's mad at God. And he literally tells him this. He's like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew if I went there and told him this message, you'd, you'd break their hearts. They'd repent and then they'd be saved. And he didn't like it. He, he didn't want that to happen. They, they, they were his enemies. And so Jonah then says, God, I would rather just die, right? He goes from begging for his life in the belly of the fish to the end of the story, wanting God to take it. Well, Nahum then is kind of like a sequel, if you will, to Jonah, right? It's the follow-up story, but it happens 150 years later. Now, I know sometimes when we read the Bible, you can turn a page and skip 150 years, right? Like, so we think, oh, that's just a normal thing. But to put that in perspective with us, from, from the time that Jonah went to Nineveh and everybody repented and all was good, to the time that Nahum was called to go there, 150 years. Now, that, that's almost identically the same time between the Civil War here in America and today. That's a lot of time. A, a lot of things can happen in that time, and that's exactly what happened in Nineveh. Man did what man typically does, and they began to, to turn from God. They were successful. They beat all their enemies. They didn't need God, and they, they, they turned away from him. Now, you may recall last week when we were looking at Joel where God reminded them, tell your children about the locusts and about the plagues and about the, 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 the armies that will come and, and tell their children to tell their children. Well, that didn't happen in Nineveh. In fact, all we learn is that every generation became worse and worse from the generation that preceded them. So God ultimately then, they had become so bad again that he caused Nahum, this time not to deliver a warning to Nineveh. That's what Jonah did. But Nahum is called to deliver a promise and a promise of judgment on Nineveh. God was saying, listen, Nathan, you go and tell him I'm done with you. Now, put that in perspective. Jonah was asked to go and tell him, hey, I'll save you. What a great message. And he didn't want to do it. Nahum has to go to Nineveh to say, God's going to kill you. He's going to wipe you out. And he gladly goes, right? And now, like last week's message also, I said earlier, there are only three chapters. And, and so today, I want to read chapter 1 in its entirety. And then I'm going to tease out a few things that I think are important for us to know. But it's just as important throughout the week then that you continue in this reading and, and finish this book at three chapters in five days during the week. I, you got it, right? I believe in you, church. I, I know that you can do that. But let's... Um, jump in this morning. Before I do, though, let me, uh, let me say this. Also, like Joel, we don't know much about Nahum, right? In fact, let, let's go ahead and look at it, uh, verse 1 there. Um, the pronouncement concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. Now, that's what we got. 
That's what we know about him. We, we, we know very little from, from the rest of Scripture, kind of like the prophet Joel that we looked at last week, right? All we know is this. Nahum is short uh, for the name Nehemiah, right? It's the shortened version of that. It'd be like uh, Will for William, um, uh, Vicky for Victoria, you know, you know something like that. It's just a shortened version of that. And the name means comforter. Now, he may be a comforter to Israel, but he certainly wasn't a comfort to Nineveh. But that's exactly what his name means. Now, we also know this, the location of Nineveh, because it was uh, unearthed in the 1800s, and we'll look at that later. Um, but we know that it is located in northern Iraq near uh, Mosul today. In fact, I think I have an image for my map geeks. There you go. That has both today's modern map as well as uh, in Nehemiah's time, excuse me, uh, in Nahum's time as well. And so you see the little arrow there at the top that's pointing to Nineveh, and then it's right beside what we'd see as Mosul today, so in the northern part of Iraq. That is where it's located, and as I said, it has been unearthed, so we know of its location. We also know that it was written in the 600 BCs, uh, 600s BC, which means it was about 150 years from that time of Jonah. But that's it. Right? That, that's what we've got. Now, we also know by the excavation and what was told in the annals of history that it was huge and it was heavily fortified, right? It had 100-foot walls that surrounded this entire city that I mentioned earlier. But not only were they 100-foot tall, they were so wide that it said that three chariots could travel completely around the top of that wall and never touch one another. It was massive. Right? So it protected them, but they also used those massive walls. They would take their, their captured enemies up there, and it said they would torture them on top of the walls so the people could see and, and hear, and, and those even outside of the city could, could know how ruthless they were. And like I said, one of the things they were known for was to take the skin off their captives while they're still alive and, and plastered on the walls. Kind of, kind of like back in the days of trappers of the early Americas, right? And they would capture a beaver and they'd skin that pelt out and stretch it out and, and hang it on the wall. They did this to, to humans. That's how, how, how vicious they were. Well, with that picture uh, of, of Nineveh then, let's continue reading, picking up in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. And by the way, all of our text is in the church app this morning, or you can turn in your Bibles. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. And he makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither. Even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. Verse 7, the Lord is good a stronghold in the, stay, in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. But he will completely destroy Nineveh with an overwhelming flood, and he will chase his enemies into darkness. Whatever you plot against the Lord, he will bring it to complete destruction. Oppression will rise up a second time, for they will be consumed like entangled thorns, like the drink of a drunkard, and like straw that is fully dry. One has gone out from you, who plots evil against the Lord and is a wicked counselor. This is what the Lord says. 
Though they are strong and numerous, they will still be mowed down, and he will pass away. Though I have punished you, I will punish you no longer. For I will now break off his yoke from you and tear your shackles off. The Lord has issued an order concerning you. There will be no offspring to carry on your name. I will eliminate the, the carved idol and cast image from your house of gods, and I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Look to the mountains, the feet of the herald who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for the wicked one will never again march through you. He will be entirely wiped out. Now, that is just chapter one of the message that, that, that Nahum delivers to Nineveh. And what I want us to do is I mentioned that though reading the whole chapter in, 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 the, in the time we've got remaining, I want to just tease out a few things. And I want us to, to begin there at verse two, because I think in verse two, uh, we find some attributes, attributes of God that sometimes people find difficult to understand when it comes to God. I mean, the fact that God is jealous, vengeful, and even wrathful. They think, well, that's just not the picture of God that I have. That's the Old Testament God, right? But didn't he change in the New Testament to, to love and peace and hope and happiness? God is God and always has been. But what you have to understand, when it talks about God being a jealous God, a vengeful God, a wrathful God, it also says what? Against his foes and against his enemies. See, when it says God is, is, is a jealous God, for believers... Friends, that's an incredible statement. I mean, God who, who created us and Christ who purchased us with his blood, he's jealous for us, not of us. What a statement. I mean, that the God of the universe would be jealous for us. We think of jealousy in our own minds, right? Man's jealousy, right? What that looks like is I love myself so much that I'm jealous of what you have, right? You have things that I want and I love me more than I love you, so I'm jealous of you. I want what you have. That's not God's jealousy. God's jealousy is based on his love for us, on his love for you. It expresses how much he loves you. And he loves us like no other. And he wants nothing to come between us. I mean, consider the, the first four commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. It's not make sure yourselves an idol. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What, what is all of that about? It's not about you not having good things in life. God just wants, doesn't want good things to become God things in your life. He doesn't want anything to, to come between you. That's a picture of, of how much he loves us. So because of that, he, he is jealous, like, like, like a spouse would be for their spouse. I'm jealous if she's spending more time with other people or, or doing these things. Why? Because you love them so much and you want to be with them. Well, well God is that way with us. But in a healthy and perfect way, he, he's jealous for us. Not only is he, he jealous for us, it says he's, he's an avenging God for believers as well. The God of the universe who, who created all things, ex nihilo, out of nothing, everything, is our avenger. You know, another word for avenger there is redeemer. He's the one, and he alone is the one who, who redeems his children. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 19, Paul says this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, he's talking to the church, to other believers. 
Do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, and I will repay, says the Lord. Now, Paul's reminding you the same thing that, that Nahum, that God spoke through Nahum. Let God be God. He, he loves us so much. We don't have, hey, well, listen, when someone hurts you, when someone damages you or, or does something against you or speaks a lies or insults or whatever the case may be, you don't have to go after them. God's got that. As Paul says, hey, just let God be God. Anyone here grow up in a home like I did uh, where the phrase, boy, you just wait till your daddy gets home was used? <laughs> now, you only stand, understand that phrase if you grew up in a house that had that phrase, right? And I think, at least in my generation, you know, especially for boys, you know, raising boys, uh, as boys get older, and we went through that transition with our children as well, but as they get bigger and older, you know, early on, you, you have that understanding as a little child, mom brought me into this world, mom can take me out right? That's kind of the healthy fear you have a mom. As you get older, and especially boys get larger and muscular and things like that, they, they begin to kind of push those parameters with mom. Well, maybe I can talk her out of it. Well, may, well she can't really hurt me, right? And, and so you begin to, to draw those lines. You begin to push it. And at my house, once you hit that line, that phrase would come out, boy, you wait till daddy comes home. And it was on, right? Yeah. There wasn't like, before when you're debating with mom, well, maybe you can convince her otherwise. Maybe I'll go ahead. It won't hurt. You know, whatever the case may be, right? But when daddy comes home, it's a different ballgame. It was altogether different. So my dad, he, he, would, he would work long shifts, and then when he came home, he kind of had his own little routine, and he wanted anything to interrupt that routine. And for him to come home from a long day's work and hear those words, you know what your son did, right? That only created more, let's say, animosity in the moment, Right? And so instead of going, sitting down, having something to, to drink or eat or whatever the case may be, he would go straight to his closet. And in that closet, I'd never forget it. You open the door, on the right, there was a hook there, and there was a special leather belt. He never wore that belt. I wore that belt, right? And, and that's what he would do, right? Wasn't the day, you know, nowadays, go to your room and think about it. Wasn't no thinking about it, right? It was just, it was judgment, Right? And we knew that as kids. It's like, you know, when we heard that phrase, you weren't going to talk dad out of it, right? You might as well just surrender at that moment. Well, that's what he's saying. God, God is the one who avenges us. He just, just wait. You know, when somebody hurts you, when somebody's standing against you, when, when people attack you, attack the church, attack faith, attack Christ, daddy's going to come home at some point. And he's going to take care of business. And there won't be any talking out of it. And I can just step away. My mom had a clear conscience after that. I said, okay, I tried, boy. <laughs> now, you're on your own now, right? She never came back in the picture. Once it got passed off to when your daddy comes home, that was it. She went on about her business. Well, Paul says that that's how we should be. Maybe connect with the younger generation here. There's that, that fascination with the Marvel Avengers, Right? I know nothing about that movie series. I had to do a little bit of study on it, but the best I can tell, this is true. You can correct me later if, if I'm wrong. But these are fictional superheroes who are on the earth to save mankind. Am I okay so far? Yeah, Avenger geeks out there? Okay. Um, I don't mean that in a bad way. Don't I mean, kind of like maps. You enjoy that, right? It's a good thing. Uh, I'm a Bible geek, right? That's a good thing too. But they're, they're, they're these fictional superheroes who, who are on earth to save mankind all for one reason because they can do things that man can't do. Well, God's our avenger. And God can do things that you can't do. Well, not only is he 
a jealous God, an avenging God. But it says he's also a God of wrath. Now, I, I spoke about that a little bit last week, so I'm going to be pretty brief here. But, but remember this, wrath is always a result of love, right? I mean, th that's what it does. Yeah, you slap a spider with a stick, I got no problem with that. Slap my kid with a stick, I got an issue, right? There's going to be some wrath coming back at you. I'm going to slap you with a stick, right? Why? Because I love my child. I don't love that spider. We're better off without that thing, right? But I love my child. Well, well God's wrath is a result of how much he loves us. And you consider God watched for an additional 150 years as the children he loves, as the children that, that, that Christ would give his life for were, were, were being brutally murdered and humiliated. And so that love would ultimately then be displayed by his wrath on the entire city of Nineveh. Well, let's also look at, at verse 3. And verse 3 is where I really camped in, in my study this week. How are we doing? We're going to make it. Uh, verse 3, I kind of I just said, it just kind of, you know, when you read the Bible, and sometimes things just, just highlight in your mind. It's like it, it lifts off the pages, and you think, wow, how, how powerful of a statement. Well, that was true for me in, in verse 3, the first part, where it says that the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, you may remember uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, when God had set the people free, his children free from, uh, for, for, from being in exile there in, in Egypt, right? And, th and they went away. When they, when they finally made it, they, they began to, to get worried again. And when Moses was up on the mountain, they, they created that golden calf to worship. And, and, and as Moses descended, that's the words that God spoke. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. Friends, don't ever forget that. You see, that was bad news for Nineveh, but it was great news for Judah. God is slow to anger, but don't ever lose sight that he is also great in power. God's love, it exposes his jealousy, his vengeance, and even his wrath, but also his delay. It's, it's kind of, I shared a story years ago here. There was a man who was in New York at one of the skyscrapers there. I think it's a 100-floor building, and he decided he's going to jump off, kill himself, right, take his own life. And, and he jumps off. And the people that were in the windows as he was flying, because it was on the news and everything else, they, they'd open their windows and they, everybody's trying to talk him out of it. But it said he actually jumped. And, and as he was going down every floor, people would hear him say, good so far, good so far, good so far. <laughs> but eventually, it wasn't good. Uh, payday someday, right? God has delayed his wrath for you. He, he's delayed his wrath against the, the enemies of his children, even today. But one day, in all his power and might, that wrath will no longer be delayed. And in our lives, listen, don't confuse God's delayed judgment with dismissed judgment. See, I think as Americans, we, we live all the time thinking, well, I've made it this far, good so far. Yeah, I'm doing these things against God. Yeah, no, I'm not going to church. No, no, I'm not giving. No, I'm not serving. No, no, I'm not doing anything for the Lord. No, I, I, I've not uh, committed to believers' baptism. No, I'm not doing any of these things, but I'm good so far. Well, so is Nineveh so far. Second Peter 3, 9, Peter writes this. The Lord does not delay his promise. As some understand delay, but in fact, he's patient with you. Why? Because... He does not want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. 
If God has been patient with you, it is for a purpose. His patience is with a purpose, and that is that you would repent, that you would trust him as Savior. But friends, don't be fooled. He's also all-powerful. And one day, God's patience will run out. One day, there, there won't be that time for a second chance. He alone is all-powerful. You say, well, well, why didn't God do this? Why didn't he come now? Look what's happening in Israel. Look, look what's happening in other parts of the world. Look what's happening in America. Look what's happening. What, where's he at? Friends, we better be thankful. He's still being patient. But one day, he won't. Verse 15a then says this, and, I, and I'll, I'll close out here in a second. Look to the mountains then, the, the feet of the herald. The herald then who, who proclaims peace. Now, this is foreshadowing. It probably rings a bell with you because you're going to hear it again in, in Isaiah, both in, in chapter 40 and verse 9, as well as uh, 52 and verse 7 that we like it at the Christmas season. They're talking about Israel's coming deliverance from Babylon, but ultimately the coming Messiah who would bring peace, who would bring peace to the world, to all those who would repent. Now, they paint that picture, look to the feet of the herald from the mountains, right? That's hard for us to understand, but what you have to know in those days, they didn't have radar, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't have internet and all these things. And so the, what they would do, they would station watchmen up on the tops of mountains close to the city where they had a great vantage point and they would look out and they would see the, the messengers, the, the heralds coming into the city. And it was said that they would look at their feet first. And if those feet were slow moving or, or shuffling, then they assumed that there was not an urgent message or certainly not good news because the messenger didn't want to share it. But, but man, if those feet were high-stepping, if they were moving, if they were kicking up dust, then they knew there was some exciting news coming. That word for herald there, it's the word besar. In the Greek, it's the word evangelion. It's where we get the word good news or gospel. It's where we get our word evangelism, that we go out sharing and showing the, the good news, the gospel, the besar of Jesus Christ. In the face now of an entire city, which eventually would be an entire empire, being wiped away, being completely, you heard the, the vernacular that was used in chapter 1, just being demolished, there was still good news, good news for the children of God. Because the destruction of Nineveh and eventually Assyria would usher in salvation for his children. The bad news for them would be good news for Judah. And in fact, in 612 B.C., Nineveh was completely destroyed. Truly, it wiped off the map. In verse 8, it said that there would be a massive flood. History teaches us that a flood came in, and it was massive, so massive that it destroyed some of those 100-foot, 60-feet-wide walls that they had built around the city. And when they did, when the, when the flood overtook those massive walls, it allowed the Babylonians then to come in to give them easy access to destroy them. Later, you'll read in chapter 3 and verses 11 that it says that Nineveh, the city, was, was hidden from sight. And did you know it was for 2,400 years until it was excavated in 1842? Completely hidden, completely covered. I'll close with this, J. Vernon McGee. He said, Jonah's message to the people of Nineveh was this, God will save you today. Nahum's message to the people of Nineveh was this, God will destroy you tomorrow. And he said, God does not change only men do. You know what happened in Nineveh? They repented. They trusted God. Everything was great. And then because of that, it 
they looked to themselves. They looked away from God. They, they, they quit telling their children and the next generation about what God had done and how he had spared them and saved them and ultimately completely turned from him. In chapter 1, neither Assyria or Nineveh is mentioned by name. The times you have it in your text, it's parenthetical. It means the writers added it in later, but it, it's just uh, a superimposing over the pronoun that was given there. It's nowhere. It's found nowhere. And the reason for that is because it serves not only as a promise of what would happen to Nineveh, what would happen to Assyria, but I believe to us today as well. And friends, I'm telling you, just as much as that entire kingdom of Assyria was wiped away, God was patient, but he exercised his power. Make no mistake, that could happen in America today as well. As we continually turn from God, turn from God, and we quit telling the next generation about God, it can happen here too. And certainly in your life and in your walk with the Lord. If Jonah reminds us the Lord is merciful and gracious, Nahum reminds us that God will not acquit the guilty. He, he will not turn away because he is all-powerful. Oh, he's patient, but he's almighty. We said in our heaven series, our eternity series recently, that a lot of people think that hell is full of non-believers, but the truth is everyone in hell believes. They just believe too late. See, they assumed God's patience would last forever, but it didn't. Friends, what about you? God is so patient. He loves you. He's jealous for you. He'll uh, avenge others because of you. But have you given your life to him? Have you trusted him with your salvation? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We talk about your patience, but we truly can't fathom it. We can't understand. Why would you be patient? And yet you are. And God, I, I just have to believe with all the people in the room today, there's someone here right now who knows you've been patient with them patiently waiting. God, I pray that right now they would cry out in their own words and ask you to save them. Save them from their sins. That they would repent and turn from those sins and trust Christ as Savior and seek to walk with you. Father, may, may we as a church, may we be that herald. We, we have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Empower us to herald it to our homes our community, and the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.